Hello, everyone. This is Victor Mercado, principal at Loom Advising, and you're listening to another episode of Current. I'll be filling in for Andority on today's podcast. Uh, we hope everyone out there is staying healthy and safe. Uh, this week, we are previewing Thursday's webinar where we have assembled leading voices in the utility, education, and human services sector to talk about an issue that has once again come to the forefront of the American conversation, the digital divide. Now, I think we can all agree that sheltering in place has redefined what home means for all of us. If you're like me, your kitchen table is likely to be both your office and your child's classroom. But to be able to provide this level of connectivity without your calls crashing, now we know that you need high-speed internet and likely a modem upgrade. And yet, if you have more than one child, then also another computer or a tablet, and all this comes at a cost. Now, we know that there's an economic divide between households who can afford these resources, as well as a connectivity divide between urban and rural America, where broadband is not always available. So to help us think through this question of what does access look like, we've invited to the podcast Steve Holmes, superintendent of the second largest school district in southern Arizona. Now, on a personal note, before coming to Illum, I had the opportunity to serve under Steve as his communications director. So him and I go way back. Steve, welcome to the podcast. It's so nice to see you again. Hey, Victor. Great to see you and hear from you. And it's uh, crazy times we're under, but um, hopefully you're doing well. Likewise, my friend. Now, before I formally introduce Steve, this idea for this webinar really came from recent news out of Detroit, where DT Energy and other business and community partners were able to rally around a $23 million plan to close the digital divide in Detroit public schools. As a research consultancy, issues of access and technology and equity are important to our customers, utilities, and program administrators. So when we heard this story, we knew this was a conversation that we wanted to highlight. So if you can, this Thursday at 12 noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, we will host a webinar to talk about this issue from different vantage points and highlighting different efforts across the country to close the digital divide. So to get us thinking about this conversation, I wanna introduce Steve Holmes. His district, Sunnyside, serves more than 16,000 students and has over 2,000 employees. Steve has dedicated over 24 years of successful service in public education and has provided clarity and insight in numerous national and international conversations. Steve has been a guest keynote for the Ministry of Education in Chile, as a panelist for the National Hispanic Caucus Conference. He's also been a key witness on behalf of the plaintiffs in the landmark case, Flores versus Arizona, centered around bilingual education and access. A graduate himself of the Sunnyside District, Steve earned his graduate degree from Harvard University in Administration, Planning, and Social Policy. He's also a graduate of the University of Arizona. Steve, it's so good to talk to you again. It's nice to see you, my friend. Thank you. Likewise. So I'm going to jump into the first question here. So Steve, Sunnyside, like thousands of school districts across the country, uh, they've had to close their schools literally physically and, and learn how to do things differently. Tell us a little bit about Sunnyside. Uh, how are you holding up? So here at Sunnyside, as, as you know, Victor, but, but for those listeners out there, um, we're uh, what we consider a high poverty school district. I have uh, 21 schools, 16,000 students. Every single school is, is a Title I school, meaning they receive uh, federal funding entitlement dollars because of the number of students that qualify for free and reduced lunch. Uh, majority of students are Latinx, Mexican-American uh, descent, uh, beautiful community to serve in, um, but as like most high poverty schools or school districts like ours, 
Um, I believe this issue has really raised a lot of the concerns that we've had uh, in general in public education, which are issues of equity and who has access to high quality education. I think some of those um, issues are, are playing out uh, and being exacerbated as we're dealing with this new digital divide and the things that um, plague our learning environment when it comes to uh, issues of poverty. Uh, Steve, your district is a model when it comes to technology, right? So you and members of your leadership team, I know you've presented at numerous uh, technology conferences, you know, on, on a normal year, whatever that means now. Um, how would you describe the digital divide um, as we look across public education? And then how is that different under COVID-19? So, you know, th this idea of technology being part of classroom instruction has, you know, really been in play for a number of years. Um, fortunately, our district took a more aggressive approach to equity and access issues around devices being part of our DNA and how we do business in the classroom a number of years back. So every student fourth through 12th grade in our district is in a what we call one-to-one -one environment, meaning every single fourth through 12th grader is provided with a device that goes home uh, every night um, and content is delivered um, through that vehicle as a, as a means to um, have students be familiar with access to content, but it's also it was a strategic decision we made when, when it comes to purchasing textbooks, things were that, that I think were important for us to kind of jump on a more equitable playing field with resources being uh, tight over since the 2008-2009 uh, depression. Um, we've been much more strategic around how we use those resources and technology was a good solution at that time. Um, and as we going into this COVID-19 issue, um, a lot of those decisions that we made in the past are, are actually helping us deal with some of those issues that most districts aren't, aren't able to, right? We have neighboring districts who are trying to purchase computers at, you know, at the 11th hour because we knew they were going to go digital when we were, had the advantage of actually having devices already at home and being thoughtful about procuring content that was, um, curated in ways that allowed us to um, have a blended environment where students were able to learn offline in, in class, but also use the device to work online, uh, either at home or during class time. So we, we've adopted more of a blended model that actually has helped us mitigate some of those issues of disengagement that we're seeing across the country so with students who don't have devices, or more importantly, um, are not familiar with a digital environment to where learning uh, can occur and with teachers who are not trained in um, delivering content in that way. So I think we are better prepared to deal with it just because of the uh, investments we made in the past. And then uh, what are you hearing from your colleagues? So what does that, the divide look like uh, across the country as, you, as you're talking to different people, again, before COVID and then uh, after COVID, what, 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 what do the conversations um, sound like today? So a lot of my colleagues and I, both nationally and just locally, um, have been engaged in some really deep dialogue around equity and access, right? And, and um, the good thing is that it surfaced a conversation that should be happening routinely in public education, but I think it's now more present um, in the fact that, you know, just devices aren't part of the learning process, right? That's not something that's been a, a given a lot of consideration over time. I think some people find it very gimmicky. Um, and a lot of my colleagues, particularly those who work in high poverty areas or have pockets of high poverty in, in their district, um, the lack of internet access in those communities, 
the lack of even residential um, opportunities for access are problematic, let alone the fact that um, these families don't have devices at home there that can be used amongst one or two or multiple children in the household. And so uh, the idea of uh, remote learning happening um, in a digital space um, for those children is, is just non-existent. And so we've had to, to, a lot of my colleagues have had to turn to creating packets of information that people come pick up. And that's not a really good um, way in which content can be delivered. And then when, you know, the lack of interaction between the teacher and the student um, in that environment just exacerbates a lot of those essential elements that are important for uh, good learning to happen, right? Learning is, I truly believe, still a social construct. Um, and without those social interactions in the learning, I think you've, you just create more gaps. And so there's the, the concerns that are, that are being discussed right now is that you have students who are really already challenged with academic gaps. And once we get through all this, how large are those gaps going to even become, right? And how do you make up the academic gaps that we've created because of this COVID-19? Um, and how do you play catch up? And if we're going to stay in a digital environment as we open schools again in the year, do those children ever get catch up, right? And what does that look like? And, and those are grave concerns that we all have right now in terms of the academic gaps that this is creating and, and the lack of our ability to play catch up very soon. Yeah, that's a good point. I think, uh, you know, what does the other side of this look like? And um, I'm hearing conversations in front of the folks also in higher ed as they're thinking about, you know, is, is campus going to open? What does that look like? Is, is it the intention that campus is going to open? Um, you know, what, you know, realistically, what, uh, what's going to happen? So, um, you know, one of the things that you mentioned was you talked a little bit about textbooks and, and workbooks. And I think it goes to the next question I have is, you know, the, the plan that, you know, DTE Energy uh, and other community partners were able to roll out in Detroit, uh, they earmarked about $23 million total, right? So 17 million for tablets, another 6 million for subsidized internet connectivity, some of the things you were talking about. Um, and that's gonna happen through the end of December of 2020. Uh, in one of their, their recent releases for the Detroit Public School Community District, you know, they, they, you know, they literally talk about this idea that over the next two years, they're going to shift to a one-to-one student-to-device ratio where home learning, number one, is gonna be required online and where textbooks and workbooks are gonna be replaced by lap laptops and tablets, right? So. As someone who's familiar with delivering uh, learning technology at scale, you have about 16,000 plus students, you know, 20 some odd schools. Uh, what else is involved outside of just having a one-to-one student-to-device ratio? That's a, that's, that's a great question. It's kind of been um, part of my mantra in this space that we're in right now, which is it's more than just a device, right? I and mean, we can provide internet and <clears throat> computers to everyone, but that doesn't necessarily create you know, the right learning environment for students to be successful. I think there are many other factors to consider for districts that are going, going to scale, things that we learned early on. One is um, what kind of infrastructure do you have to support devices? As simple as that sounds, um, once you have a number of devices trying to work on one network, that just complicates uh, <clears throat> your ability to de deliver content if you don't have the right um, kind of infrastructure to support that which includes how do you distribute, how do you manage, you know, there are so many management parts to devices and upgrades and just Java updates, things that um, I guess we tend to forget that have to be done uh, coherently, right? And that's, that's one piece, I think, how do you build coherence 
with devices so that you make sure um, kids are safe, right? So there's a safety part of this. There's an infrastructure part of this. There's a there's a student training on this. So how do you what where do you go to actually do web searches? What how do you go about uh, managing whether you're using a Google platform or Microsoft platform? Um, what does that look like? How do you save documents? There's a technical part to this, um, and then there's a teacher training part that I just can't emphasize enough that. Um, the educator must be familiar with how do you plan in this environment and you know what does that look like the interaction with between you and the student in the presence of content in an online device um, and how do you how do you make sure you're maximizing time there and what's that sweet spot for students who are working remotely and your ability to connect with them daily so you know you, you see these variables that are that are equally important they have to be given consideration but I think the one for me that I, I just gotta probably speak to the most important is, is the other factors that influence motivation in an online space with students particularly. Um, and we're beginning to kind of think through what those factors are to begin to talk more boldly about them. And one is, you know, what's the relationship between the, the facilitator of the knowledge and the student? We know for a fact that students are more engaged right now in their learning, uh, have a better relationship with their teacher. Right, and that's it's as simple as that sounds. How do you build relationships then if, you, if the, your starting point is from a distance environment? What does that look like? Uh, it, because you won't have a previous relationship if you have a new coming class of fourth graders where, where your, your introduction to them will be a Zoom call, right? And so, uh, you know, how, if that's a strong variable, then how do you build off of that when the relationship is being built in a distance environment? Um, the, the other factor that I, that I think is really important for us to kind of really think purposely, which gets to the equity issue, and I don't think any device or internet can solve this, um, is what are the conditions for learning? We know that as we go into classrooms, and, and one of the things that we discuss and where we find great value in, in observing and analyzing teaching and learning experiences is the learning environment in the classroom, right? That, that plays into how a student is going to respond to the teacher, to other students. <laughs> that social part of a classroom environment, how you set it up for you know, for the very intentional learning opportunities that are, that are going to be meaningful, um, all that gets lost when you're home in an environment that we have no control over, right? And, and the importance of that can't be lost on us if, if a student is at a household where there's high stress and parents are managing un unemployment right now and um, there's no safe space for them to actually sit and do work quietly. Um, how, how is that problem going to be solved by getting a device and, and an internet, right? That's, that's another consideration that we have to, it's going to require much more community dialogue around creating safe places that are conducive to great learning that may not be school. Uh, and if, and then it's at, if it's at home, what kind of support are we giving those families in ways that we haven't thought of to make sure the students are learning. It's not just, you know, set a, a, a desk somewhere where kids can learn. It right. goes beyond that. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Uh, one of the things that we're looking at is, you know, uh, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, um, the digital divide and, and what's happening, you know, how, how far is that gap, you know? And so when we're looking at, you know, certain families that have to drive to library parking lots, right. Or, um, you know, trying to find it like, you know, some of the, the 
some of what we're seeing in the Navajo Res where people have to drive many miles just to get to a place where there's actual uh, access to Wi-Fi. So I think on top of those, you know, on top of those issues, you add some of the social stresses that you were talking about that, that can that make it a little bit more difficult, right? Obviously for the student to, to learn, right? Yep. Um, you know, one thing that, that we're really interested about is, you know, as, as you are watching this play out in real time, Steve, what are you learning about your students? And what are you learning about your learning organization during COVID-19? So we were deeply engaged in really building these constructs of identity, purpose, and agency with our students as part of our, our graduate profile. <clears throat> and what we've, what we've learned um, is that we still have great variability in student agency across our, and that, and that I think has been clear to us as we've gotten into this online space because part of agency is also self-regulating and self-efficacy skills, right? That what, how are you able to handle this kind of stressful environment and still continue learning? And, and, and as we build on agency, I think we've, we're able, we've been able to kind of now see some of those things that we can kind of circle back to in terms of building some of these agency skills that we know are important as we are witnessing in real time students' ability to actually practice those skills. And, and so we're seeing a lot, I'm paying attention more to some of those soft skills that are essential to lifelong learning, as we call it, um, that um, are, I think, becoming clear even to teachers who have engaged in some of the work that we've embarked on to actually develop an agency. Um, um, and, we, and, and I think we have some proof points in students who have been successful in this environment they can help shape that as well. So we're in kind of this data gathering, observation, you know, evidence kind of gathering to really begin to build upon um, these successful pieces that have been working, such as the students who are deeply engaged and being successful, such as the teachers who are deeply engaged and documenting a little bit of their, um, you know, why they, are, uh, they believe these engagement efforts are a little bit more successful and then Mm -hmm. trying to really build that into our, our um, graduate profile for next year. But I think those observations are going to be really important for us as we break into the summer and start building up our um, kind of launch for next year. Right. I, I can imagine you're learning a lot about not just the student, but also the professional culture of your district. I mean, talk about being tested. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think uh, a lot of the investment we made with teachers early on in this space, I think is paying off because there, there's, conversations we can still have in a distance learning environment that I, I think make um, push a lot of the thinking around these these constructs of identity purpose and agencies in ways that we hadn't thought of before uh, which I think can make us very much a stronger organization in the fall um, based upon what we're experiencing now no yeah absolutely um, so you've talked about teachers you've talked about students talk a little bit about family i, I want to see if we could just pivot for a minute to talk about um you know the the system around your system right so looking at the private sector uh community foundations other organizations uh, what are they doing to support your district right now uh, are they playing a role when it comes to access and technology and if they're not what would you like to see so so we are seeing a lot of um folks very interesting and in, in assisting us with this digital divide right so there's been a lot of uh Folks who are, who are who, um, you know, community partners like Cox Communications, who's looking at ways in which we can streamline ways, um, uh, applications for parents to get um, inexpensive Wi-Fi access. They've been really kind of great partners in this work and 
finding ways to work around, work with parents on you know the economic factors that, that have to be considered. We have a foundation right now, a foundation board that's been working on creating a um, COVID-19 relief fund um, so we can provide direct support to parents who are struggling during this time. Um, and a lot of empathy right now from organizations. But I, I guess for me, what, I, what I've been telling a lot of our partners right now is that um, I don't need more programs. And I think most of my colleagues can say the same thing. We don't need more programs to come support the work. Um, we need more direct services that we can provide for families. I think that's where the stressors are occurring. In other words, we, we have folks that want to donate books and, and, and those are all great. But right now, I think the, the primary concern that we have as an organization is the stressors associated with family life and the economy. Um, and so mm -hmm. the more uh, we can kind of look at ways in which you can directly support families, I think is where I'm pushing most of our partners to divert funds to outside of the, the internet and computer access, which is still uh, an important uh, equity issue that we're dealing with. But I, I really think direct, direct resources to families and support to help them nav navigate the complexities of systems where those resources are available. In right. other words, you know, most of our families don't have the social capital to navigate and figure out who to call and how to make, you know, um, take advantage of those uh, things that are out there for them. And, and so sure. helping navigate those along with direct services is where we're pushing a lot of our efforts. I want to talk a little bit about infrastructure and, and energy use because we are seeing some districts that are using their buses as Wi-Fi hotspots, for example, right? Or they're using them to deliver meals. Or um, I'm, I'm kind of curious, how are you utilizing your fleet? And, and also, did you at any point consider electrifying your buses before this crisis? And, and along those lines, yeah, uh, how has COVID-19 made you rethink uh, other capital investments, you, you know, you invested a ton into solar panels with in partnership with TEP recently. So how are things looking on the infrastructure side? Yeah, so, so that's a great question. So we, we, like other districts, are serving our meals via our buses that, that have Wi-Fi on them, which allows them to, you know, students who have access that don't have, so we can pick up their breakfast, lunch, and get Wi-Fi. Um, but we have to turn the bus on, right? And what does that mean? We're running diesel fuel while... You know, that's the only way you can actually operate the Wi-Fi. You have to turn the bus on. And so you have buses running there for a few hours while kids are coming. That's not really the most um, best way to kind of contribute to our environment. And, and, and as we've considered, quite frankly, we had considered um, as we receive money for new buses, some um, going, going electrical, which we still feel is, is a good solution. I think part of the challenge is, is um, when you're – when you've come off a, uh, a state where capital dollars have been uh, kind of cut completely and you haven't replenished your buses, um, you're forced to make some options based on finances and not what's best for the environment and what's best long-term. So in other words, I could have bought, you know, I was able to buy 10 buses for the cost of three electric buses, right? And, and my logic was built around, well, I need 10 buses and I don't need three. And so this, right. it's, it's just... The, the incentive structures that are built to m pivot into a much more um, clean energy, I think a clean energy model is, is not there. Right. Um, and um, I, I really think in, in hindsight, right. When, when, when I go by and watch the buses running, I, I just, 
cringe, right? Because I know we're providing a great service on commodity, but what's a long-term impact? And how do we get to a place in, in, in public education where the incentives um, are there for us to do the right thing uh, and not really just trying to backfill emergency issues that we haven't done so in the past? And I think we've done so with solar panels. I think that's been helpful. But there were incentive structures built into solar panels that we know there's a long-term impact. But I don't see right now it hasn't played out at least um, in public education institutions where all those are incentives are across the board in every purchasing area that we're um, engaged in right now. Sure. And then you also have to train your staff and motor pool to be able to service. So it's not just, you know, the acquisition of a piece of, you know, you know, a bus or infrastructure. Yeah. Um, no, that's great, Steve. And I'm, and I'm glad that you have that, you know, that mindset that you understand that, you know, you're trying to do a really good thing by providing access and feeding kids. And at the same time, though, you, you realize, right, that, you know, there's, there's that, you know, negative externality from having the bus running on, on, uh, on diesel. Exactly. And yeah. I mean, not to mention that it doesn't smell good. I don't want kids standing around with a diesel running bus right. for long periods of time. I mean, it's the irony, right? It's noxious. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So as you talk about, you know, we talked about students and, and just want to talk a little bit about maybe what you're also learning from, from families through this process. Uh, what, what brings you hope? So what brings me hope is um, a few anecdotes have been shared, particularly in our, in our exceptional education area, uh, where we have students with special needs, which greatly concerns me in, in, this, in this time, right? And how we servicing students with IEPs. Uh, medically fragile students, students who, who really need a lot more uh, involved support. Um, I think what I've learned and I think um, is many of those families have been so deeply engaged with their students during this time. And even with the challenges, um, they're almost more engaged now than they were in the past. And, and, and I don't mean that in, in a negative way. I, it's actually a, a positive story here because um, we, we provided flexibility for their involvement through this digital space that was not available, available to them before. In other words, things like having an IEP meeting, right? We schedule them in times where they're working. Now, they're, because we're doing it this way, parents can get on an IEP. And we had like at least three parents say, why didn't you guys do this before? I could have made a lot more of these meetings. And that was a big aha. Our exceptional education director came back and said, you know what? We're doing things differently next year. If we ever are able to come back, we got to take advantage of the digital environment that we're in to bring parents to, to their, um, I guess, to, to mitigate some of those issues that we felt were um, disengaged parents, when in reality, it was the system's own fault for not finding ways in which we can engage them better. And, and Just meet them where they're at. Yeah. Meet them where they're at. And this, this um I didn't think this would be a byproduct of this, um, but we are finding, at least in those areas, that I think, for the most part, the flexibility this provides, I think, gets gives parents a lot more flexibility to be involved in ways that we hadn't thought of before. Um, Steve, is there anything else you want to share before we sign off, or any other thoughts, parting thoughts? Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I appreciate that you are, you're, you guys are really thinking through this. You know, what's, what's more than just a device? I just kind of want to end with that kind of thought-provoking question is, 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 is this idea that once we get devices and internet solved, which is kind of this the new basic need, right, for families, I think it's a consideration that we have to think that it's just as essential as home and shelter and food, 
is having digital access. The proliferation of information and lack of access to it is, is, is um, it's an equity issue that's solvable, right? Um, I think we have to also be thoughtful of what else is necessary for us to be successful in that environment. Um, because we've been down this road, this digital learning has been around for over a decade and there's a lot right. of, there's a lot of proof points. And I, th I think it's, it's time to resurface some of those proof points, but in the space of equity, uh, because many of those proof point points, unfortunately are um, touted as successful, but uh, it's really because of the population they serve and not because they were um, doing something very um, important in the equity space. So I, I think there's, there's a great opportunity that I'm looking forward to ongoing dialogue around issues of equity and technology. Um, and um, maybe I can, we, we can add value as an organization to that conversation. Yeah. And I love what you said about the new basic need, right? So um, that's, I think you, you said it really well there. I think one of your colleagues in San Antonio had very re uh, recent comments around that one of the superintendents. Um, out there. Um, uh, Steve, I also love this conversation. I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's it's nice catching up. Uh, well, it was great to hear from you, Victor. <laughs> we, we miss you here. So, uh, you know, you got a, a, a second family here always and uh, Sunnyside um, uh, really uh, wants to thank you personally for what you contributed when you were here and what you're continuing to do in this education space. So we thank you. No, I appreciate that. And, and we're also excited to, to hear from you on Thursday and the rest of our panel. Um, so I'm excited to, to see you on the call. For those of you who are listening, uh, please tune into our webinar on Thursday, May 14th at um, 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific time. This episode of Current was created by Illum's production team, music by Blue Dot Sessions. See you next time. <laughs>